0: You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with
1: our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening.
0: Our scripture reading today is from 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Let's pray uh, as we open God's word. Heavenly Father, again we ask for your blessing, for your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, soften our hearts, give us ears to hear. Lord, that uh, your word would become alive and that we would become alive as we obey and follow you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, the first rings, 1 Samuel, chapter 18, the beginning. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. And then jumping ahead to uh, chapter 20, verse 30. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he did not eat. He was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, Run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out to him, Isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, "'Hurry, go quickly, don't stop.' The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about all this, only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, "'Go, carry them back to town.' After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most." Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. And finally, out of 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 25, David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. How the mighty have fallen in battle! Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. This is the word of God. Good morning.
1: You are not enough people, said the writer, Kirk Vonnegut, while he was musing on the human need for community. And it's a really good point. Kurt Vonnegut and any good writer knows that alone, you are never enough. And I can actually prove this. Okay, watch. I'm gonna show you some pictures from famous stories and I want you to tell me what they have in common. We have Sam and Frodo, Goose and Maverick, Ron, Hermione, and Harry, and even Dory and Marlon, which shows you that storytellers know whether it's last century or this one, action or animated, that we want to see heroes that have committed friends by their side because that's a good story. And I start here because this summer we've been going through a series called Pointing to the Promise where we're looking at characters in the Old Testament in light of the big story of the Bible and we're asking every week, how do these characters point to Jesus? Which admittedly is a series of spoiler alerts. Because every story we're looking at, it's like, yep, it's about Jesus again, surprise. And this Sunday is going to be no different. We're going to look at the life of King David. And surprise, it's going to point to the life of Christ the King. But um, actually, what might be a bit of a surprise is that I'm going to focus in this morning on a sub theme of David's life in this covenant friendship with Jonathan. We just read the passage on it. Now, I'm focusing in here because this is actually a growing theme throughout the Bible, and we've actually passed by it already in some of the characters we've looked at. We haven't looked directly at it, but, you know, Joshua had Caleb, Ruth had Naomi, but this theme of friendship in the Bible really comes to center stage for the first time in the Old Testament in this famous and pretty drawn-out narrative of Jonathan's friendship to David, and we're going to see that the Bible shows us, starting here and into the life of Christ, that a major idea of the Bible is that alone you are not enough. You need a covenant friend by your side who will save your life and call you forward into the future. And ultimately, we're going to see, surprise, that that's what Christ's friendship does for us. So here's what we're going to do this morning. Number one, we're going to look at the covenant friendship in the life of David. Number two, covenant friendship, and the life of Christ. And number three, we're going to apply it to our life. So I'm I'm going to dive right in to this story of David right after I introduce myself. Because as you've noticed by now, I'm not Corey. (laughs) My name is Justin, and I'm a shepherding elder here at Third. I occasionally get asked to teach or preach, and I love doing it because it gives me opportunities like this this week when I learned so much about David's life. Y'all, his life is epic, it's crazy, all right? So I'm gonna to have to start with a really quick history lesson on David's life because then only, only if you see his whole life will you understand where this story of friendship fits in it. So I, take a, I took a page out of Nan's book from last week and drew you a map. And you're looking at this and you're like, this is supposed to bring clarity? <laughs> I'm gonna tell you this, the brief story of David's life. Maybe this image will help. But it's, I can't believe his life hasn't been made into a movie or... TV series yet. It's probably because it's too inappropriate for the church going audience that would want to go see it. (laughs) His life is really real. It's really visceral. And I'm going to try to keep it G rated. We'll see. (laughs) All right. David's life begins at this period in Israel's story where they are completely failing their people. You see in the book of Judges, Nan and Corey actually censored the story last week to keep it G-rated because Judges gets really explicit with how bad the Israelites are caring for their people. So a new prophet and a new judge of Israel, Samuel, rises up, and there's two books about the life that spawns from Samuel's time, and Israel asks Samuel to give them a king. And he's like, that's not good because God's supposed to be your king, but he goes to God, and says, can I give them a king? And God is like, look, they're asking for all the wrong reasons, but okay, let's give them a king. So he concedes, and Samuel goes out and anoints King Saul, who is a big, strong guy. He looks the part of the king, but he very quickly, utterly fails in his moral character and ability to be a king. So while Saul is still king, God tells Samuel, I want you to go find me a new king. Feel the tension, right? Kings don't really like that kind of thing, but Samuel is sent out to the house of Jesse, and he finds this guy who, listen closely, right, is born in Bethlehem. He's the great grandson of Ruth and Boaz. He's the youngest and smallest of about eight brothers. He's he's nothing really special or kingly. He is very handsome, we're told, and he's he's interesting. So he's kind of an outdoorsman. He's out in the fields. maybe a little of a a poet hippie out there because he's got his guitar harp thing going on. He's writing songs in the field. But he's clearly manly because he's slaughtering lions and bears out there. So he's an interesting guy. And yet he's overlooked by Samuel at first. But God says, keep going down to the youngest brother, that one, because this is where we get a famous line. He's a man after my own heart. This is David. And David has this wild moment as probably a young man, late teenager, early 20s, we're not sure, where he's anointed by the leader of Israel, Samuel, to be something great. And we very quickly see that he is something great. He is a man after God's own heart because he alone has the faith in God to walk into the ring with Goliath, right? Every kid knows this story, and put a stone in Goliath's head. And then again, trying to balance the G-rated here, he, he brings the human head of Goliath to Saul, and Israel goes wild. And for a hot second, David's stock just absolutely skyrockets. Like, everyone loves him. Saul makes him the musician of the kingdom in his court. Um, He gives him his daughter, Michael, to marry. He gives him a troop of men to go around slaughtering Philistines. And David becomes best friend with the king's son, Jonathan. All right? And David is winning Everywhere. Like he can't lose. He's slaughtering Philistines all over the place. And women start chanting his name in the streets. You know, imagine like John Lennon arriving in America. Like the girls are loving this. And King Saul starts hating this because, as we mentioned, there's that little human dynamic that kings don't really like being replaced. So when David starts to look like a king, Saul starts to melt Uh, mentally, physically, spiritually he starts to go crazy. He makes two attempts on David's life, one with a spear in the palace. He misses. And then he sends an assassin for David while David is on his honeymoon with Saul's daughter, Michael. Like I said, this is a wild story, y'all. It needs to be a movie. But this is where David's life starts to fall apart, okay? And this is where, see, that star, Jonathan, encounters David, And we'll come back to this, but just to finish the overview of his life, David is now in a cave period for what scholars estimate is years. It could be five or 15 years, which is a long time to be on your run for your life. (laughs) Like, that's a long time. But then Saul and Jonathan die in battle. David is made the leader of Judah and then promoted to the king of Israel. And you need to hear this. for, For biblical literacy, this is an incredible moment, okay? David, for the first time in Israel's history, soundly defeats all the enemies, unites the, the tribes, consolidates political power in the city of Jerusalem, which he calls Zion, moves the ark of God there. And this is where you remember the story of David dancing in the streets? Israel again goes wild because for another hot second, it seems like everything they were made for is coming true. They, the presence of God in a safe place, all of Israel cheering. Things are going great, and God makes a promise to David in that moment that a forever king Messiah will come from his line. And if you're an Israelite reading this story, you have goosebumps now, but they do not last because David fails pretty badly as a king. He abuses and has an affair with Bathsheba. He murders Uriah. His family, there starts the incest happens, murder happens, He's on the run again for his life from Absalom. And as you'll see in the chart, he kind of barely recovers. He does reinstate his kingship in Zion and passes peacefully power to his son Solomon. But he dies as famous for his sins as for his successes. And that's the life of King David in a nutshell. Thanks for staying with me. You made it through the history lesson, okay? But you need to understand that because here's the thing. When, when David encounters Jonathan, we know that he will go on to become royalty, David does not know this. David is on the run for his life. And in order to understand that moment, I want you to think about your life for a second. Think about this, okay? If you're like me and like most people, there's probably some point in your life where you felt like, I've got some promise. Maybe the Lord didn't literally anoint you, but maybe it was like when you got married or when you first had kids. Maybe it was some high school football glory moment. (laughs) Maybe it was when you started a job that you thought was gonna make your life that you thought, the Lord has something for my story. But then, again, if you're like me and most people, and David, life begins to get very complicated and difficult. And it might be mental illness, it might be physical illness, it might be trauma or your marriage falling apart or difficult children or the job not working, or it might be all of the above, but you start to think, oh my gosh, I had such promise and now everything is falling apart. It seems like the world is out to get me that's where David encounters a friend. And spiritually speaking, I just wanna note this morning, this is spiritually true of us, right? If you've been to church, if you've been around Sunday school, you've been around third, that you might be vaguely aware that a promise has been made to you, Ephesians 1, 4, that you're chosen. You might be vaguely aware that God has adopted you to be sons and daughters of the true king. That's Galatians 4, 5. You might be, have heard, that he is working your story and the story of the world, all the sufferings and all these tragedies for your good and his glory. That's Romans eight twenty eight. But sitting here on a regular Sunday morning, usually we feel much more like a frail, vulnerable fugitive on the run for life, much more than we do like future kings or queens living in an epic story. So did David. He was on the run. And that's where he finds a friend who lifts his head and literally saves his life. So think about what happens to David here with Jonathan. I'm putting a a few verses up. This story is very drawn out in the Old Testament, which shows the writer wants us to notice, okay? Jonathan, 18.1, simply loves David. He loves him like his own soul. This is repeated a couple times in the story. But so much so, it's, it's like more than a feeling, right? The song by Boston. Um, he, I, I, I quoted it as Bon Jovi in the last service and I was so embarrassed. <laughs> it's Boston. It's more than a feeling. Jonathan actually covenants with David. He makes a promise to him. He says, David, I'm here for you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to look out for you. And he then goes on to risk his life in a major way for David. And this is the story that we read, right? So the way he does this is he goes into the court of the king, Saul, and mind you, catch this key fact, Jonathan is the eldest son of King Saul, the heir apparent, right? But he goes in and fights for David, and he says, don't hurt David. David David has done nothing to you. And Saul says, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. You can imagine what the actual English translation is. And then he throws a spear at him. He tries to kill his own son. Luckily, Saul misses again. Jonathan runs out into the fields and has this complicated arrow system. But what is happening is Jonathan is sending a signal to his friend, run for your life. My dad will kill you. And they have this beautiful moment, frankly, where they hug, they embrace, they weep, they confess their love and friendship to each other. And that's the last time they'll see each other. David runs, his life is saved. Jonathan will go on to die In battle, paving the way for David to become king. And David will say this incredible line about Jonathan later in his life, that his love was greater than that of a woman, which is just the Old Testament way of saying that friendship like that is one of the greatest pleasures in life. It's one of the high water mics in life. And if you're, okay, to summarize that, listen, Jonathan, the guy that should have been king, makes a covenant with little old David And his death eventually paves the way for David to become royalty. If you've been around church or Sunday school, and you're a nerd like me, you are hearing the echoes of another story. But not everybody is a nerd like us. So let me make it really clear. Ready? This story sounds a lot like Jesus's friendship to us. All right? We actually read this passage about two or three months ago, Corey preached on it, John 15 where Jesus gives a famous speech at the Last Supper to his disciples on friendship. And he says in it this, he says, I do not call you servants, for servants don't know what their master is doing. I call you friends, for I've told everything the Father has made known to me to you. And greater love has none than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. Those are Jesus' words to his disciples. And I want you to note, these will become our application points. You ready? I want you to note three ways that Jesus' speech on friendship is incredibly like Jonathan's friendship to David. One, vulnerability. All right, so Jesus says, everything the Father has made known to me, I've made known to you. There's just full disclosure. That's the difference between an employment relationship and a friendship. Friends talk, right? You, You turn your life inside out. You tell each other everything. If you read the full story of Jonathan and David, these words are in the mouth of Jonathan twice in the passage. He he says says to David, everything Saul, I know what my father Saul is thinking. I will tell you, I will protect you, I will look out for you. It's, it's, It's incredible. The words are repeated almost verbatim. So there's vulnerability. Point two, there's commitment, okay? This is ultimate vulnerability. Actually, the Latin root of the word vulnerable means to be capable of being wounded. And right, Jesus is talking about his disclosure to his friends on the night before what? He goes on to die for them. And he says, greater love hath none than this, that a man give up his life for his friends. This is ultimate commitment. Likewise, Jonathan almost takes a spear for David and then gives up his, he would have been the next king. He gives up his kingship and then point three, so it's committed vulnerability that leads to kingship, that leads to royalty. Jonathan's death paves the way for David to become king. And likewise, you remember Jesus' death on the cross. What does he say to the thief? Join me this day in my kingdom in paradise. I pull this out this morning because I want to show you that this is a huge flashing pointing sign to the promise of covenant friendship in our life. Covenant friendship is not actually just a subplot of the Bible. It is an enduring theme of the story of scriptures, which means it should be an enduring theme of our life because Jesus is the ultimate covenant friend. And if our goal in life is to become imitators of God, all right? that's Ephesians. If we're supposed to become more and more like Jesus, it necessarily means that we become more and more like a friend. What does that look like in our life? Well, we're gonna follow those three things. How do we do vulnerability? How do we do covenant commitment? And how do we call each other forward? into royalty. All right, so let's go through those. First, vulnerability. One night, this was many years ago, I'm talking with a close friend of mine in my living room, and we were interrupted by a phone call where we found out that a mutual friend of ours that we had known fairly well had become addicted to prescription painkillers and so badly that he was actually starting to steal them from other people's houses. And when we got off the phone that night, We remember thinking what was not, the question in the room was not like, how did this happen? Because actually you and I, we all know that men and women fall in private long before they fall in public. And each of us has the capacity for incredible failure. The question on our tongues that night was, is there anything that you're not telling me? Are you hiding anything? Why? Why was that the question in the room that night? Because all of us have the capacity to live behind the fig leaves. It is so easy. And I say fig leaves because, right, if you're familiar with Genesis, this is the story of friendship that's ticked off at the very beginning of the Bible. Adam was told by God, it's not good for you to be alone, which is a funny thing for God to say to Adam because God's standing right there, right? It's like being on a date with your wife and like, hey, this is really great if I weren't so lonely. It's a strange statement, but God is telling Adam, you're not enough. Actually, we're not enough. You need other people to experience me the way you were made to experience me. So God gives Adam Eve. And for a bright second in Genesis 2, they're they are naked and unashamed. That's the idea that they're fully known by each other and God and fully loved. That's the paradise we're meant for. But what happens in the fall, you remember the first thing that happens after Adam and Eve sin is they start to hide from each other, fig leaves. And they start to hide from God behind bushes. So, what I'm saying is that the life of fallen people like you and me, who are out in the caves and don't live G rated lives, is that we are prone to hide. And that might be burner accounts or secret usernames. That might be private browsing windows. That might be your own addiction that you haven't told. It might be your own trauma you haven't shared. I don't know what it is. I just know that you and I and David and everybody else in the world will melt when we hide our sin. You remember King David wrote, when I remained silent, my bones burned within me. Because we were made to be known and loved anyway. That is vulnerability. And that's why with my friend in the room that night, we asked each other this crazy but beautiful question. Is there anything you're not telling me? And I remember this moment because we both said, no, you know everything. And that was the product of a hard fought, relationship of disclosure. But it's probably the most important thing that you can do in your life. So I just want to ask you, do you have anybody in your life like that, that knows you fully? Obviously, just a quick note, telling everything to just anyone is the sign of relational unhealth, not health, okay? So I'm not saying go around telling your deepest, darkest secrets to everybody, but Jesus had a few people to whom he said, I've told you everything. David had somebody named Jonathan in his life who knew that his life was falling apart. So not everyone needs to know everything, but someone needs to know everything. Do you have somebody like that? If you don't, I want you to consider this morning, after this service, send a text message to somebody or ask them to coffee. Say, I've got got something I want to tell you. Come out from behind the fig leaves. You will find um, life is a little bit more like a high school dance than not. Most people are waiting to be asked. And when you open your life up to somebody else, most, there will be some people who just, they miss it. And they're like, cool, have you seen this meme? But most people, all right, so don't get, don't get too depressed about some of the duds. Most people, dud moments, not dud people. I'm just, <laughs> most people will look back at you and say, I am so honored you felt like you could trust me with that. Actually, can I tell you something? Because vulnerability is contagious and it's the soil where covenant friendship begins to grow. And just, look, I know this is risky. This is making ourselves capable of being wounded. I once shared this with a group of executive leaders telling them they needed vulnerability in their life and one of them came up to me afterwards and was like, look, if my friends know everything about me, they could get me fired. I was like, exactly. You need someone who can wound you but instead... Sticks around and love you anyway. That's vulnerability in commitment. That's the gospel love that Jesus shows us. So let's talk about commitment. One of the most holy things that we can do for each other is what Jonathan did for David, what Christ does for us, and say, I see your vulnerable place in life, but I'm sticking with you. How do we we approximate that? Um, A few years ago, I was talking to a rather new friend on my front porch. We didn't know each other very well. We were just getting to know each other, but we sensed like we had a lot in common. It was going well. And I remember this friend said to me, he was like, you know, we should lean into this. We should do this more often. And that little sentence changed the course of our relationship. Just a little bit of intentionality in words. I would call it a gesture of commitment. And remember, God made the world through words, right? And then he passed on that creative power to Adam and said, you name the world. And I'm saying that just because our words, your words have incredible power to create different realities, different futures. And when we use them to signal commitment or love to a friend, like David and Jonathan did in the field, incredible things happen. This friend and I, the guy who said that to me, I actually went on to be in his wedding after knowing him only for about a year, which was a, a, a neat honor Um, But what was even more interesting is he gave all of us groomsmen a bottle of scotch for his wedding gift to us. And right before the ceremony, we were opening it, and I was like, that's a nice bottle of scotch. But what is this weird number written on top? It was in black Sharpie Marker, it was 2037. Everybody had a different number. And he was like, Oh, that's the year that we'll drink this together. 2037. This was like in 2015 or something, I can't remember. I was like, whoa, that's an incredible demand on my life. This guy assumes that we'll still be friends in two decades. And it was all, like, I was not asked. <laughs> but that was the beauty of it. Like, isn't that incredible? This, this, this guy was like, yeah, I, we'll have cave periods. We'll have tough things. We'll have tragedy. But why don't we stick around and keep doing this? Do um, You hear that echo in Jesus's words, I choose you. You see that in Jonathan's actions to David, I'm gonna, he, he, didn't, he doesn't just love him as his own soul. He makes a covenant to him, and what I'm saying, hear this clearly. If you hear nothing, if you hear nothing else this morning, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knows you fully in all your vulnerability, and what he sticks around to love you anyway. That's incredible. That is good news, and that's exactly what we do when we work on deep, committed, vulnerable relationships with each other. We embody the gospel of Jesus in real time and in real places. So I'm saying think about gestures of commitment. This is not marriage. You can still lose a lot of friends in life and still be relatively healthy. And it's not necessarily a covenant in, you know, where you sign a contract in blood, but maybe. I'm open to it. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm just saying in a a world where relationships are more like disposable cups than anything else, we could use a little more, not less, covenanting. So maybe it's giving a friend tickets to a concert a year from now. Um, Maybe it's giving them a a bottle of wine, saying, let's share this. Maybe it's saying, let's meet for coffee once a month. Whatever it is, figure out how to gesture commitment because you need vulnerability over time. Lastly, friends call us forward into kingship. Um, Many of you know though some of you may not, I went through a period uh, many years ago when I was a young lawyer where my life fell apart in anxiety and panic. And it was one of the most difficult times of my life. It was my cave period. It was not G-rated. I had a long stretch where I couldn't sleep unless I had a drink or medication. And I remember sitting with my wife, Lauren, at a table during that time. It was, we were out to dinner. And I remember saying to her, I feel like I had such promise. But now I think I'm just going to end up in an insane asylum or worse. And I remember Lauren's answer to me that evening was, I don't believe you. And I look back on that time in my life, and I think Lauren's covenant friendship to me in that time was that she did not believe the future that I predicted, where everything falls apart. She clung to the future that faith predicted, where everything comes back together. And the power of her friendship in that time was what I see as the glory of covenant friendship like Jonathan or like Jesus. Most of us won't take a spear for each other. Most of us won't get hung up on a cross for each other. But the power of somebody beside you says, I see the vulnerable place you're in. I see the world you think is falling apart, but I believe in a different story and I will hold your hand and walk with you towards it. That's an amazing gift that we can give to each other. To say to each other, you think you're headed for death in the caves, but your future is royalty. You're a future king or queen. What royalty, king or queen? This this is because David's life becomes a major, major theme of the Old Testament. Because as Jonathan dies, David rises to kingship. And look, The Bible is really clear that David's kingship is not great, right? We went over this. There's Bathsheba, Uriah, all his problems with Absalom. He is a failed king in many ways. But think back to that bright moment in Zion where the people of God come together. God is there covenanting with them in a city that they're destined for. This, in the Old Testament, is a bright flashing sign pointing to the promise of another king, of a true messiah someone who was also born in Bethlehem, someone who was also a descendant of Ruth and Boaz, someone who was also a shoot of the tree of Jesse. But this man, like David, didn't look the part of the king, like David was an unlikely Messiah, and like David was ushered into Jerusalem to crowds chanting on Palm Sunday. But this man named Jesus, when the spear of death was hurled at him, he took it. He died on the cross. And by the way, all his friends abandoning him died alone without friendship. The death that you and I and David and everybody else in the world deserved. Jesus took the wrath of the Father King on our behalf so that we could become friends with God again. Jesus died for you. Why? Because greater love has none of this that someone lay down their life for their friends. I want you to hear the beautiful story of the whole Bible this morning. Jesus actually likes you. He actually loves you in all your messed up life. And he's bringing the world together, though you think it's falling apart. Behold, your true Jonathan. And behold, the real King David, your friend, the King who is calling us forward, whose death paves the way for our royalty. Church, that's good news. And we can rest and celebrate in that this week. So I'll close saying, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that covenant friendship like that makes ordinary life sacred because it calls us out of the caves and into kingship and royalty. So we'll, we'll know that we're working on this major theme of the Bible when we look more like AA than a social club because we're vulnerable. But yet we stay committed to each other and arms over each other's shoulders. We walk towards a future that we may not see yet, but is real. That's the kingdom of God. Let me pray for you. Lord, may we do that. May we be imitators of you. May we be Jonathans and Davids to each other. May we take care of each other. May we make us vulnerable. Lord, right now, all of us live in our own hiding in our case, but Lord, bring us out to each other. Teach us your commitment. And let us walk with great faith into that kingdom that you promise. Amen.